Hi, my name is Stephen Mather, your host on Cults on Film. Welcome to the show. Today I'm going to be analysing two of the Star Wars movies, Episode 4, A New Hope, and The Revenge of the Sith. It will, of course, include spoilers for both of these films and many others of the Star Wars franchise. I was just 11 years old when a new film was released to great excitement. It was called Star Wars, oddly claiming to be episode 4, A New Hope. As a youngster belonging to a religious group I now recognise as a cult, I was both excited by the science fiction action-adventure and a little worried by the violence and the references to what appeared to be a false religious philosophy practised by the good guys. Anyway, I pushed the concerns down and allowed myself to enjoy the film. And I've watched every film since and genuinely love the world Lucas created. Today on Cults on Film, I'm exploring the radicalisation and recruitment of a father and son, Anakin and Luke Skywalker, principal characters in the Star Wars movies, played by Hayden Christensen and Mark Hamill, respectively. Before I go on, I want to repeat that I love the Star Wars universe and many of the films, especially Episode 4, A New Hope. But in this podcast, I will argue that the Jedi have enough of the characteristics to be described as a cult, and that the Sith can be described as a terrorist cult. If you disagree with this analysis, I will simply paraphrase Master Kenobi himself when he says that what I tell you is true from a certain point of view. Of course, it can be argued that the Jedi are not a harmful cult and that their ethical stance makes them the good guys. But I will also argue that while this may be true, their doctrines and practices provide much of the cultic rationale for the evil that the Sith do and perhaps bear some responsibility for the rise of terror in the galaxy. Okay, I'm going to start with the recruitment of Luke Skywalker, a young man living with his uncle Owen and aunt Beru on a backwater planet called Tatooine. Luke is bored. He tells his newly acquired droid C-3PO that if there's a centre of the galaxy, this planet is about the furthest place from it. He feels his life is meaningless. He longs to hear news of important goings-on away from this primitive backwater. A feeling that their life lacks meaning has been identified as a possible precondition for some who join cults or become radicalised. Luke appears to be disconnected somehow. His identity quashed by the demands of his uncle to help with the harvest year after year. When Luke tells his uncle Owen that the droids might be stolen because they're trying to get back to their legal owner Obi-Wan Kenobi, he speculates that it could be old Ben they're talking about. 
Owen dismisses him as a crazy old man and that Obi-Wan died about the same time as your father. If Owen's intention was to shut down the conversation, it completely backfired. He knew my father, replies Luke, super sensitive to any information that might somehow ground him and make sense of who he is. I told you to forget it, says Owen grumpily. Now, watching this scene, it's easy to place Uncle Owen as a grumpy, demanding bore who just wants to suppress Luke's youthful exuberance and his real psychological need to understand his family history, thus grounding himself. But looked at in a different way, Owen's desire to protect Luke from a set of beliefs that would undoubtedly put him in danger are actually quite understandable. So, as a group member, it was part of my duty to call on people in their homes and encourage them to have what we would call a Bible study. But it was really based around a publication we'd work through as we tried to convince the person that the truth of the universe was to be found only through the interpretation of the Bible provided by the group. Now, I raise this point because... I've seen the same expression of worry and concern on the face of relatives or friends who just happened to come around while the study was happening. So perhaps Owen is worried about Luke getting sucked into a cult, a natural fear. While cleaning up the two droids they've just purchased, Luke stumbles upon part of a message. It's a beautiful woman asking for help from Obi-Wan. Of course, we know Luke will find out later that this is Leia, his sister, but the fact that he's attracted to her from the video clip is clear. Cults often use physical attraction as a way to entice people into their group. On the sister podcast to this one, What Should I Think About? I've spoken to members of the Children of God group, now named the Family International. The young women of this group were encouraged to engage in a practice called flirty fishing, or FFing. Of course, there's no suggestion in the movie that this is being done on purpose, but even when not part of a strategy, bringing partners along into the group is certainly a major way new people get recruited into many cults. So, following somebody in, being attracted to a member of the group, uh, being married to somebody who then becomes a member of the group. These are all ways of people going into high control groups of one sort or another. Okay, back to the film. Trying to retrieve the wandering R2-D2, Luke is rescued from the Sand People by Old Ben who volunteers the fact that he is in fact Obi-Wan Kenobi. Luke goes to Obi-Wan's hut to try to retrieve the message for him. Straight away, Obi-Wan undermines everything Luke's uncle had told him. He tells Luke that, contrary to what his uncle had said, his father fought in the Clone Wars. He tells Luke that his uncle didn't hold with his father's ideals, thought that he shouldn't have gotten involved. So an argument could be put together to say that everything that he's telling Luke is at least partially true, but the framing is far from open and honest. 
but worse deception is to come. Luke asks if he was involved in the Clone Wars. Yes, I was once a Jedi Knight like your father. Luke is thoughtful. I wish I'd known him. Obi-Wan smiles, thinking fondly of his old friend. He was the best pilot in the galaxy. He was a cunning warrior. And he was a good friend, he says. This selective sharing of information and specific framing is actually a classic form of cult recruitment. As somebody who tried to recruit people into my group, I would say things like, look at this picture. It's an artist's impression of what the Bible says the earth is going to look like once God has put everything right. The potential recruit looks at the idyllic picture of smiling, happy people frolicking with formerly dangerous wild animals, living forever in paradise. What we didn't say is how this utopia is to be achieved. According to my former group, this state of paradise will only be achieved after the apocalypse, with billions of people dead, horribly slaughtered. Selective information and a very particular type of framing. Also typical is the subtle flattery coupled with the creating of a link for Luke to his father. Obi-Wan says, I understand you're a good pilot yourself. So he's creating this link between Luke and his father, the Jedi Knight. Ben goes on, which reminds me, he's in full manipulation mode now. I have something here for you. He goes across to a chest, opens it up and gets out a lightsaber. Your father wanted you to have this when you were old enough, but your uncle wouldn't allow it. Now, does anybody really believe that as Anakin was becoming Darth Vader, that he said to Obi-Wan Kenobi, hey, I want you to give this lightsaber to my unborn son. There is nothing in any of the films I'm aware of that even hints that this actually happened. Now, okay, it's possible that in some of the wider materials, such as the books and animations, this is somehow explained. So, if you know about it, fine, let me know. But I think that that's just a justification after the event. Again, the framing that his uncle is somehow a spoil sport, he wouldn't let you have it, is upon reflection pretty unfair. Both Obi-Wan and Owen know what Anakin became. It seems entirely reasonable to me that he would not want Luke to get sucked into this cultic religion. He was worried you might follow old Obi-Wan on some damned idealistic crusade like your father did. Well, let's unpack this. So, first of all, he places into Luke's head the idea of going on a crusade. Yes, you heard it. A crusade with all of its religious connotations. And of course a young man is going to be attracted to going on an adventure with this charismatic figure that knew his father and in fact doing something that his father did. He now gives the lightsaber to Luke. He starts to practice with it. How exciting. Obi-Wan now tells Luke the story. The myth. 
All religions and cults have a story, a way to understand and make sense of a complex, often frightening world. He uses a clever rhetorical device to draw Luke in, describing the heroic Jedi as guardians of peace and justice in the Republic, before the dark times, before the Empire. Then a pause, a long pause, inviting Luke to ask for more information. How did my father die? Luke asks. Obi-Wan looks pensive for a moment. Alec Guinness doing a brilliant job of allowing us to see his mind working. And he makes a decision there about how he's going to frame that answer. A young Jedi named Darth Vader, who was a pupil of mine before he turned to evil, helped the Empire hunt down and destroy the Jedi Knights. He betrayed and murdered your father. This is a lie. Of course he tries to justify it later with the whole from a certain point of view nonsense, but it is a lie designed to provide Luke with motivation to get involved without risking him getting interested in the dark side of the Force. He tells Luke that Vader was seduced by the dark side. More questions from Luke, and Obi-Wan explains that the Force is an energy field that binds the galaxy and everything in it together, and it's the use of this that gives the Jedi their power. Of course, no evidence is provided for this claim about the nature of existence, and from what we know about the Star Wars universe, this mystical explanation is a fringe one at best. But Luke, with the wide eyes of the new recruits, accepts this pseudo-scientific explanation and nods his head as though he understands it. Obi-Wan finds the message and we watch Leia implore Obi-Wan to take vital information encoded within R2-D2 to her father on Alderaan to help with the war effort. It's now time for Obi-Wan to close the deal with Luke. You must learn the ways of the Force if you're to come with me to Alderaan, he says. Kenobi here does not ask Luke if he wants to come. He could have said, would you like to come with me to Alderaan? No, this is a command. You must learn the ways of the Force if you are to come with me to Alderaan. To learn the ways of the Force then becomes a qualification to coming with him. He places it as a requirement upon him. You must learn the ways of the Force. The assumption is already there that he's going with him to Alderaan. Very, very clever. This is very typical. You know, not, not just anyone can come on this mission, only special people, only those chosen. Not just anyone can join this cult, only special people, only those who have been chosen. Oh, and there's effort and sacrifice required. You're going to have to pass some, some sort of initiation process. Again, very typical of cult recruitment. This recruitment tactic, however, doesn't work at this time. Luke is not yet radicalised enough to just accept that order. He suddenly remembers he needs to get back. He has responsibilities. Kenobi tries again. I need you. Come with me. Learn about the Force, Luke. This last-ditch attempt doesn't work either, but Luke offers to take him part of the way. 
But of course we know circumstances occur that means Luke loses everything that might have kept him on Tatooine. In a recent interview I conducted with Darren Shalacombe, an expert in counter-terrorism and radicalisation for our podcast What Should I Think About, he talked about a sort of push-and-pull process when someone is involved within a cultish-style terror group. There will be moments that push the individual closer to the group and other times when the individual is less affected, but there is often an event or a catalyst that tips the person over the edge. That means from that point on, they are now all in. And of course, the murder of his uncle and aunt and the destruction of his home is the one for Luke. A common feature of cults is that they sometimes splinter. This often happens when the original founder dies and there is a fight for power by the lieutenants of the deceased leader. Or it can happen gradually. Perhaps there are differences of opinion about certain doctrines or the interpretations of scripture. The Jedi and the Sith appear to be classic examples of groups who essentially share the same worldview, but who make sense of it in very different ways. In some ways, the two groups mirror the two opposing philosophical and quasi-political stances we hear argued in the modern world sometimes. The one way of looking at the world is that to get on, it's all about aggression, power, domination, winning, individualism, using passion, anger and hate to get your will, a world of continuing combat and a fight for supremacy. And on the other hand, there's the peaceful, controlled, thoughtful, collegiate, collaborative, cooperative, selfless, community-focused, that is the other way of thinking about life. And in a way, these two groups, the Jedi and the Sith, seem to encompass these very earthly philosophies. The radicalisation of Anakin Skywalker is very different from the one his son later experienced. His journey did not include learning about the mystical doctrines and explanations about the nature of the world. He'd already had that done. He'd been taught about these as a boy. Okay, a sidebar here. When the child Anakin is presented by Qui-Gon before the Council of Jedi Masters, they refuse to authorise his training citing the fact that he is too old. In fact, this hints at another cultic practice, that of child indoctrination. In the Star Wars universe, we just seem to accept that children are taken from their parents as a matter of course and learn the ways of the Force in some sort of institution. These are the younglings we get to see meet that tragic end at the hands of the newly radicalised Anakin later on. But these children are too young to make such a consequential decision about their future. And I argue that they should remain with their families in any other setting that would be the case. Anyway, Anakin doesn't need to learn a new worldview. He just needs to be manipulated into switching his allegiances in line with his own interests. Palpatine, or who we learn later is actually Darth Sidious, does this through Anakin's love of Padme. Again, we see a cultic practice within the Jedi in that we learn it is forbidden for Jedi Knights to have romantic relationships. 
Anakin and Padme keep their relationship secret, even from Obi-Wan. This is an unhealthy situation. The denial of normal, intimate relationships results in many problems to the individuals themselves and the wider community. I would argue that this secret and this forbidden relationship is essentially what sets up a situation where Anakin is unable to express his normal feelings about the love of his life, even to the father figure of Obi-Wan Kenobi. And this is the secret that Palpatine is able to use as a wedge to manipulate him into drawing to the dark side in order to protect her. And is it any wonder Anakin is paranoid about Obi-Wan? He's had to keep this relationship secret to the only father figure he's really ever known. Palpatine has been playing the long game in his recruitment of Anakin. Getting closer to him, confiding in him, he is subtly replacing Obi-Wan as that father figure. He love bombs him, a term used by court researchers and experts in coercive control for showering a person with positive feedback, love, regard, praise. And then there is the scene in Revenge of the Sith where Palpatine asks Anakin to sit with him and he tells him the story of Darth Plagueis the Wise. Play this scene back to back with the scene previously mentioned in A New Hope as Obi-Wan recruits Luke. You will see the parallels are striking. An older man A father figure to an orphan tells a story, framing the universe in a very particular way. Both only provide partial information. There's lies in there. Both create a picture with a piece missing. A piece the exact same shape as the young man in front of them. Palpatine describes the tantalising power of the dark side and importantly raises the possibility of Anakin becoming so powerful that he can save the life of those he loves. Clearly, Palpatine knows about Anakin's relationship with Padme and his dreams of her death. He knows exactly the buttons to push. And if it hadn't have been for this rule that the Jedi's had about not having relationships, intimate relationships, I think a lot of this could have been avoided. Many cultic religions play on people's loss or fear of death. The promise of being able to see lost loved ones again in a resurrection was something I was taught and was also instructed to dangle as a carrot to anyone who might be tempted by this promise to become a member. In my view, it's cynical and manipulative, and Palpatine does it here. But again, it's a lie. He knows Anakin will never have opportunity to save Padme. This conversation is not the final play to recruit Anakin, but it's moving ever closer. Soon, he will reveal his identity as the Sith Lord, who's been manipulating events to his own ends. And when Palpatine does finally reveal his identity to Anakin, he's horrified and seems to remain loyal to the Jedi. But later, as he sees Master Windu apparently about to kill Palpatine, the only one who can teach Anakin how to save Padme's life, 
he intervenes, killing Windu and throwing in his lot with Palpatine, now revealed as Darth Sidious. Now, it took me a long time to accept Anakin's apparently rapid change of heart. But the key to understanding his actions lies in this belief that Sidious had this special knowledge. Knowledge that only he possessed about how to save Padme. If he had died, Anakin believed that he would lose her and he couldn't bear that. In his mind, he had to do it. But once he had taken that action, once he had killed a Jedi Knight, once he'd killed Windu, he felt he had no way back. And besides, he still believed Sidious could help him save the woman he loved. The woman that the Jedi had forbidden him to be with. The woman that he couldn't go to the Jedi to ask for help because he knew their love was forbidden. One of the questions that often exercises my mind is whether it matters what cult members believe. In one sense, it doesn't. And I try to avoid being judgmental about beliefs. It's easy to laugh at other people's beliefs or think they're ridiculous or imagine them to be stupid. So I try to avoid that sort of thing. I try to avoid being judgmental. But on the other hand, beliefs do matter because they have consequences for what people do. Anakin's beliefs about Sidious's power to save Padme led him to commit terrible atrocities. And we only need to look at any sort of extreme cult to see that some of the things that they do that we might say are antisocial around uh, practices, around sex, um, around raising children around policies, around medical interventions and so on. These all come about because of beliefs. So in a way, beliefs are important. So back to Anakin. Even after he learns about the tragic death of Padme, Anakin is now past the point of no return and embraces the only life he now has. Another interesting guest I've spoken to, Alexandra Stein, talks about attachment theory and how what cults do is set up a disorganized attachment between the individual and what could be described as the parental figure or the cult leader. This cult leader or parental figure ends up becoming both the source of comfort and hope and love but also the thing that is feared. So it sets up a confused and difficult relationship that tends to stop people from behaving in a way that you would normally expect in their interests. You could put a really good case forward for explaining Anakin's behaviour towards Palpatine using this theory. So the recruitment and radicalisation of two generations of Skywalkers demonstrates many of the subtle and manipulative tactics cults use to entice people into their group. Of course, from a simple movie narrative perspective, we are fully behind the Jedi. They're the heroes. They're the good guys. But in any other setting, I think we would be very concerned about many of the ideas and practices of the group, such as forced celibacy, 
and the institutionalization of very young children to train them to be knights. Thank you for listening to Courts on Film. Courts on Film is an Evil Sheep production.